Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you so much for staying subscribed and being a listener. I appreciate it so much. I am very happy to have Thomas Crowell back on my show. I interviewed him a year or so ago about Cassie Chadwick, the subject of his marvelous book called Queen of the Con, From a Spiritualist to the Carnegie Imposter. The book he is here to talk about today is the one he talked about briefly at the end of our first interview. It is called Murder of a Journalist, the True Story of the Death of Donald Ring Millette. Thank you so much for coming back on. My pleasure to be here, Eric. So when did you first become aware of this notorious Canton, Ohio murder? Well, Murder of a Journalist was actually the first book I wrote, and uh, it's been out there now something like 12 years. And I was, at the time, looking for a book to write. I lived in northeastern Ohio, and I was looking for something that I could do that wasn't going to take me too far from home or cost me too much money to research it. So I stumbled on this story actually, while doing research and on Cassie Chadwick. <laughs> so I did some looking into it, and no one had done a story. Uh, no one had done a book on Millette. And um, frankly, it's a very interesting story. I have to admit, I've written three books now, and Don Millette is still my favorite. He's the kind of character that uh, you can really get behind because he was a good guy. Uh, doing a good thing. Uh, and so that's how I found the book. And I've, I went with it from there. I had a few lucky breaks, there's no doubt, along the way. Eventually, the book, after it was published, was chosen as a one-book selection for the Stark County, which is Canton, Ohio, library system. And I had a lot of fun with the presentations and so forth that I did with that. It was... Uh, 
really a wonderful experience. And um, the last pr the last presentation that I did was a ghost walk where we took a walk out to where Millette was actually shot. And we had something like 100 people trailing along behind us. So it was really good. Oh, goodness. Has that location where he was murdered, has it, has it changed much? They tore his house down and put up a gas station. <laughs> uh, the streets are still the same. Most of the houses around there are still the same, but his sat on, the, on a fairly interesting corner. So, of course, they tore it down and put up a speedway or something. And uh, there was a historical plaque put up by the state of Ohio but the neighborhood was kind of deteriorating and they were afraid somebody would steal the plaque. So they took the plaque and took it to the William McKinley Library and Museum, President McKinley, who was from Canton. And it's on display there and not out at the location where the actual murder took place, unfortunately. Yeah. So let's start with Don Millette. You write that he came from a family of journalists, correct? Yes, yes, that's true. In fact, his one brother was an editor in Washington and a member of Franklin Roosevelt's inner circle, uh, like 20 years later or 18 or 20 years after Millette's murder. His family was from Indiana. They were, for the most part, most of them were small town paper, but some of them rose to some prominence. And Don decided he wanted to be a journalist as well. He went to uh, Indiana University, and he got all the way through it except one semester away from graduation, and he became ill with a kidney problem, and he had to drop out. And actually, he kind of got separated from journalism for a couple of years. At one point, he was in the orchard business, I believe it was, or maybe it was grapes anyway. He, uh, he tried farming and that wasn't for him. So then he decided to get back into the business. And his first job in Indiana was on a prohibitionist newspaper. This was before the days of prohibition. And I suppose we should set the time frame that now we're probably talking um, the early 19s, uh, 1912, somewhere in that neighborhood before prohibition. And so he worked for this Prohibition newspaper for a while. He wanted to have his own newspaper. Uh, and so he was hired to be an editor of another small town newspaper in Indiana. And he did that for a bit, uh, not terribly successfully. He was offered a half share of it, which he took, but the paper just didn't do well. and. He decided to leave, so he sold his half share and went looking for something else. At that point, he had a hard time finding anything else, and he ended up being the advertising manager for a newspaper in Akron, Ohio. And it really wasn't something he liked because he wanted to be a journalist. He didn't want to be an advertising manager. And so at a meeting, a convention in Columbus, it was, he met James Cox. Now, Cox, uh, astute people with trivia knowledge, would probably recognize James Cox. He was an Ohio governor during World War, the period of World War I. 
And in 1920, he ran for the presidency against Warren G. Harding. Cox was a Democrat. Harding was a Republic, or a, Harding was the Republican, yes. A uh, bit of trivia here, Cox's vice president or vice presidential nominee was one Franklin Roosevelt, and Cox was also a newspaper man. He owned two or three newspapers in southwest Ohio in the Cincinnati area. Well, of course, he lost to Harding, so he decided to throw himself into the newspaper business, and he bought this failing newspaper in Canton called the Canton Daily News. Previously, it had been known as the Stark County Democrat. It was a Democrat paper. Back in those days, papers usually took sides political party-wise. And so the Stark County Democrat was the Democrat paper in a fairly Republican area. And their competition was the Canton Repository, which still exists to this day. It was actually started by the Saxton family. Ida Saxton married William McKinley, and she was first lady for a while. Now, by this time, they had sold the paper, but it was still the predominant news source in uh, that particular area, Canton, Stark County, and around there at that particular point in time. Cox needed an editor, somebody who could go in and shake things up at the Canton Daily News. He got to talking to Millette. Millette was always a positive, can-do sort of guy. He convinced Cox he could do it. Cox hired him, and he sent him to Canton, and we're up to about 1925. So when Millette arrives in Canton, it's right in the middle of Prohibition. What does he walk into? What, what's the political situation like? And how does that affect his work at the Daily News? Well, the interesting thing is that, uh, of course, it was prohibition, but there was plenty of booze to be had in just about all the major cities. It wasn't that hard to come by. Just to back up a second, of course, uh, prohibition uh, was everybody's idea of a wonderful idea until they passed it. And then they discovered Congress, national government, discovered that uh, it wasn't all that popular after all. So they'd passed it, but then they'd got cold feet and didn't appropriate any money to enforce it. And that's the real history of prohibition, is that there was little federal support to enforce this amendment. And it ended up being a situation where states had to enforce it themselves. They had their own liquor control agents who were separate from the police. The police were supposed to enforce it. So generally, it was a mishmash of different groups trying to enforce this and nobody doing a good job of it. Now, as you might imagine from a man who worked on a prohibitionist newspaper, Millette was in favor, for the most part, of prohibition. When he got to Canton, he realized fairly quickly that the way he could help turn his newspaper around, increase its circulation, which meant increasing advertising revenue and so forth, was to go on an editorial campaign. I don't think you ever see newspapers doing that today, but back in the day when newspapers were the primary source of news in the United States, they frequently went on 
campaigns where they would pick up a pick out a civic issue or a national issue or something and just press the heck out of it in an effort to try to attract readership uh, it was very competitive and so when Millette got to Canton, which he knew nothing about except from having worked in Akron, he started sifting around for an editorial campaign. Well, he first tried, uh, there was some trouble at one of the hospitals with a nurses group and so forth, and he tried that, but he didn't get any traction there. And then one weekend, I think it was a Sunday, he and his wife were out for a drive after church and they stopped someplace to get lunch with the kids. And again, this was Sunday and it was the middle of prohibition and a bunch of kids came in who were obviously uh, drunk, had had too much to drink. Well, this just went totally against uh, Millette's grain and he was angry about it. And he said, I'm going to put us find out what caused this and I'm going to put a stop to it. And so his editorial campaign sort of fell into his lap that Sunday, and he decided that prohibition would be it. Now, he could have taken that campaign up in just about any, any northern city in North America in those days, at that particular point in time, but here he was in Canton, so he decided to, to run with it, and he started investigating, and he started writing editorials he focused, he ended up focusing on the police whom he didn't think were doing their job sufficiently. The police chief's name was Lengel. He was an old time cop. He'd been a cop for a while. Prior to being a cop though, he'd been a baker. And he became, a, he was a cop. He became chief of police. He was pretty old school. And he was also not particularly in favor of prohibition. So while they, the Canton police sort of uh, gave lip service to enforcing prohibition, they didn't try too hard. And so Millette kept pounding away at him with editorials. At one point, one of his editorials said, uh, told Chief Lengel to get busy or get out of Canton. Uh, as you might imagine, this did not make Millette any friends on the police department. Right, right. So he suspected that the police were corrupt. What about the, the local underworld? Who were the leaders? And outside of liquor, uh, bootlegging, what were the illegal activities going on that concerned local citizens? Well, there was uh, bootlegging, and there was gambling, and there was prostitution, and there was all the usual stuff. There were protection rackets. Uh, the most recognized local crime boss was a guy named Jumbo Crowley, no, re no relation to me, <laughs> who uh, sort of ran things. Uh, as far as the liquor part of it goes, that was run from Pittsburgh and Cleveland. Uh, there were some local players, but most of the local people, most of the local guys involved in the bootlegging and, uh, and prohibition types of uh, illegalities were small town hoods. Um, one of them was a guy named Ben Rudner, who was, uh, his father owned an auto parts store. He worked in the auto parts store. 
He had been arrested in the early 20s for bootlegging, had gone to federal prison. He kind of viewed himself as being some sort of a local godfather, where actually he really wasn't. But he kind of always inserted himself and uh, always insinuated that he was and liked to play the tough guy and so forth. It really turned out that the people who were most angry about uh, Millett were some of the people in the police department, uh, one detective in particular named Streitenberger, who was, uh, who was a great fan of Chief Lengel, and he was quite angry about the fact that the chief was getting all of this bad publicity from Don Millett and really felt that uh, he was given, wasn't given the chief a fair shake and so forth. Now, I would say, I want to say this about, about Don Millett. Um, he was, of course, the editor, and he was also, for many years afterwards, known as a, f- a fairly famous journalist. He was not a good writer, uh, which might seem a little bit unusual, but he knew how to run a newspaper. He had a good eye for news, but he wasn't a good writer. So he brought his brother, Lloyd Millett, into town made him the city editor. And in those days, in a lot of newspapers, the reporters would be sent out to interview people and collect information. And then they would bring their notes back to the city desk and the city editor would write the stories. And so his brother Lloyd, Don Millett's brother Lloyd was the man who wrote most of the editorials and who wrote the actual stories for the most part that you find on the front page of the Canton Daily News during this time period. Obviously, the two brothers were thick as thieves and together they were the ones who pushed this editorial campaign and pushed it fairly successfully because in a few brief months that they did it, they succeeded in making a run at equaling the uh, circulation of the uh, famous and long-standing Canton repository. You have to remember that Millett was pushing the envelope here because he wanted to sell newspapers. I don't really know how far he expected to get with the whole, you know, did he expect to stop all illegal liquor from getting into Canton? Well, that was <laughs> going to be next to impossible as it was almost in any other city. So he was pushing the envelope and pushing his, uh, and pushing the chief pretty hard. Now, his boss, Cox, down in Dayton, which was where he was based, he came up, actually came up to see, came to Canton to talk to Millette about what was going on and what was happening. Now, Cox bought the Canton Daily News, but he really had no idea. I think he bought it kind of like people do things after they get a, do strange things after they get a divorce. Well, I think that after Cox lost his presidential bid to Harding, he really didn't know what to do with himself. So he went out and bought the Canton Daily News. He thought he could run the Canton Daily News and it would be pretty much like running a paper in, say, Springfield, Ohio, which was a small town, or Dayton. And it turns out that it wasn't. The northeastern corner of the state and the southwestern corner of the state are really 
somewhat dissimilar in terms of uh, how people think, how people vote, how people act, what people do for a living, and so forth. Southwest Ohio, even to this day, is largely is heavily Republican, and Northeast Ohio to this day is heavily Democrat. So Cox was kind of in a situation here where he didn't really know who his readers were. So he went to Millette and he said, are you sure about this thing, about this campaign you're on? Are you sure about this? And Millette says, oh, yeah, yeah, we're you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to do it. We're, we're doing okay here. We're, we're going to get, we're going to, we're going to catch the repository. We're going to sell lots of papers. And Cox says, well, you know, you got to be careful. I've heard you've had death threats. And Millette says, no, nah, it's nothing to worry about. I got it under control. So Cox kind of just said, okay, you know, go ahead and follow through with it. And that's what he did. Millette kept pounding away at him, kept for, kept trying to get, and Lengel and the police were, you know, they were getting paid off by bootleggers, just like police were in every major city in the United States. They were getting paid to look the other way, to not be too diligent, and none of this, nobody showed much interest in changing any of this just because Don Mollette and the Canton Daily News thought it should be that way. I'm not even sure that the increase in uh, the circulation was necessarily a reflection of people supporting what Don Millette was proposing as so much as it was that they did it for its entertainment value. I mean, in the end, the news is significantly entertainment. And I think that uh, a lot of people just enjoy reading the repository and then reading the daily news to see how the two of them beat up on each other. We will return in just a moment. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, 
Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now and can you guess the twist? And we are back. So about those death threats, it's in early July of 1926 that things really begin to escalate for him. Uh, Millette was receiving death threats through phone calls to his home. And and a possible reason for this, you write, was that Millette had admitted to friends that, that he knew who had committed a local unsolved murder from 1921, a guy named Paul Mooney Kitzig had been found shot in the back of the head. Uh, Kitzig had been a driver, uh, driving bootleg liquor into Ohio, and he had turned state's evidence against Ben Rudner. And Rudner was eventually convicted of federal liquor law violations, uh, largely because of Kitzig's testimony. So Rudner could have been behind that murder. And the suggestion is that Rudner was worried that Millette had connected him to Kitzig's death. How confident do you think Millette was that he knew who had killed Kitzig? Millette, and this is something that it's not, I didn't make a big deal of it in the book because I really had no way of, there was really no way of proving it. Uh, And this is supposed to be nonfiction, of course, although if it was a fiction book, it'd be wonderful. But it was said that Millette would, dress up in disguises and go out around town and circulate through different neighborhoods and go to different places and try to pick up information and talk to informants and and that sort of thing. And that that was how he got a lot of his uh, information, including this bit about the murder. And whether there's any truth to it, how much of it he really truly did I, I don't really know. I, my, I have a gut feeling that there's a little bit of, if not a lot of exaggeration in some of that, uh, because some of that sort of thing came out after he was murdered and not so much of it before. But uh, when we do get to July, uh, the heat's been turned up because of his editorial campaign and the police are feeling the heat. The mayor's gotten involved. He's gotten after Chief Lingle about not doing anything. And things are starting to build up. And there's one detective, uh, Streitenberger, who really uh, is angry about this. Uh, Of course, Ben Rudner, the so-called local crime boss, at least that was what he thought he was, he got involved in it. And they decided that what they needed to do 
was to bring in some outside muscle and give Don Mollett a good thrashing in order to get him to loosen up on Chief Lingle and on the whole prohibition campaign altogether. Now, this was a bad idea from the start because even if they had beaten Mollett up, he wasn't going to quit. That wasn't who Don Mollett was. He was, if anything, uh, stubborn. <laughs> and uh, so he, he wasn't going to go that way. He wasn't going to just lay down and roll over. But the local hood, and uh, he had a couple of, uh, he had a friend named Mazur, who was another local crime figure. And they all got together, the three of them got together and decided they needed to find somebody. And they remembered somebody had seen, I, I don't remember exactly how the connection was made again, but the guy who was Rudner's barber in the Atlanta penitentiary was a fellow named Pat McDermott of, from Pennsylvania. McDermott, if there, if there is a most notorious in this story, it's Pat McDermott. He was the one that somebody said, well, you know, I've heard that, and they didn't even, they, uh, Rudner didn't even remember McDermott's name. He only knew him as Red, uh, who was the barber when they were, uh, when they were in prison. And he said, well, you know, somehow they made a connection and uh, Red was available to do a job for him. Uh, Red had family in western, eastern Pennsylvania, central Pennsylvania, and he had some in Cleveland. So McDermott, who various times has been described as uh, looking like a polite, well-dressed clerk. I mean, he was short that you would hire this guy as muscle is comedy in and of itself. Nevertheless, they got a hold of him and got him to come to Canton and told him that they would pay him. Rudner would be the guy who would pay him. Rudner's family had some money. He'd, he'd handle the money. And it was the job of McDermott to go out and give Millette a beating. McDermott says, no problem. I can handle that. They bring him into town and he, he gets to town and he kind of likes it. He's getting everything paid for. So he spends most of his time sitting around pool halls, speakeasies, barbershops, drinking booze, spending Rudner's money, just generally having a good time, but not showing any real interest in going out and giving Millette a beating. So this goes on for a while, a week or two, and Rudner and the, is getting kind of impatient about how much this is costing him. They were going to pay uh, McDermott for doing it, so they decided, well, we're going to need to motivate him. And motivation was that, you know, get out there. We need to take you out there, and we want you to do it. We want you to get this done, you know, give, give him a beating. Well, well, somehow along the line, the beating turned into shooting. And McDermott was given a gun, a rather large, ugly-looking gun, according to some handgun, according to some people. And Streitenberger, the police detective, and Mazur, the other small-town hood, picked up our friend McDermott and drove him out to where Millette's 
home was in Canton. And across the alley and down, there was a place, a vacant lot where it was kind of grown up and there was a earthen embankment and some old trash piled there. And he was to wait there until Millette came home and then shoot him. So he had the gun and just to make sure that uh, he had enough courage, his two friends gave uh, McDermott a bottle of liquor and said, call us when it's done. (laughs) Well, it turns out that sitting out there in the dark with the mosquitoes was only good as long as the bottle lasted. And so along about, I don't know, 10, 11 o'clock, something at night, McDermott gets up, walks to the nearest phone booth, calls Mazur and tells him, listen, come get me. I'm done. Millette hasn't come home. He's been out for the whole evening and I'm ready to go home. Well, they told him, stay right where you are. We're coming. So Streitenberger and Mazur drive out to the lot and they walk up and, you know, what's going on? And he says, well, they're, you know, they, they haven't, haven't seen him come out. They well, somewhere in, in this time frame, Millette does come home from a dance. He and his wife had gone to a dance with another couple. They had danced a couple dances, and then they did what all good law-abiding Americans did after a dance at that time. They went out in the 1920s, this is, they went out and had a milkshake. Couldn't drink, so, you know, that was the substitute, drink milkshakes. If you were in the ice cream business in those days, it wasn't a bad place to be because that was the way you were supposed to, you know, spend your evenings. So... They went and had a milkshake and then they decided, well, they got into an argument and, you know, you can't make this stuff up. They got into an argument of which uh, dairy store had the best milkshakes or it was even the best chocolate milkshakes. So they decided to go to the other one that they were arguing about and have another one, another milkshake. Well, isn't that what we all do? We go to one, you know, place and have one and go to someplace else and have another one. So they went out (laughs) and they found it was closed. Unfortunately, they couldn't settle their argument, so they got in the car. They drove back to Millette's house. Uh, they sat down on the porch, and they talked for a while. And then the, the other couple decided they wanted to go home, but Don Millette says, no, no, stay a little while longer. You owe us a little longer visit, so on. So, Okay. So they stayed. In the meantime, Mrs. Millette goes into house, the house to get some coffee and some snacks for them. And Don says, I'm going to put the car in the garage. Behind the garage was a car, a parking area for the car. And there was also a small two-car garage, just steps off the back porch. So he goes out, gets in the car, pulls the car in the garage, and he closes the one door. And he's in the process of closing what will be the right-hand door. And in those days, if if any of you listeners can remember back to the old days before there were overhead garage doors, you had the side garage doors that closed from either side. So he had closed the one, he was in the process of closing the other. When the three men in the lot, which were probably somewhere between 40 and 80 feet away, started shooting. And there was a fuselage of shots. One shot went through the window of Millette's house, which was over the kitchen sink. It broke the glass. Glass shards ended up in his wife's hair, and the bullet missed his friend's head by a mere inch or two. Smashed into the wall in the kitchen. And there were others. 
as it would have, and, and these were so poorly aimed shots that, I mean, they covered like a 20 foot radius, <laughs> bouncing off the house, hitting the garage, everything. Well, unfortunately for Don Millette, one of them hit them, hit him squarely in the head behind the ear, and he dropped to the ground, slumped actually to the ground against the garage door. Well, the at that point, the uh, the shooters took off, and as you might imagine, Mazur and Streitenbrenner took off because they knew where the car was. Turns out that uh, Pat McDermott didn't know where the car was because he hadn't been with them when they came back. He goes running in the other direction. Meanwhile, uh, Millette's uh, family and his friends come out. They find him on the sidewalk or on the driveway there, slumped with the bullet wound in his head. Uh, it takes them, with the help of a neighbor, maybe 20 minutes or so to get him into the house. Uh, they, uh, there's a debate as to whether or not they should call the police. Uh, Millette's wife did not want to call the police because he, she thought that they would probably not do anything or might even have something to do with the murder. But the neighbor that was there convinced them that they should call the police because maybe they could give first aid or something. The other friend that was there, he gets in his car and runs off to get Don's brother, Lloyd. And to make a long story short, a doctor got there perhaps a half hour after he was shot and pronounced Don Millette dead. Uh, the, uh, needless to say, a gunshot wound to the head was, was fatal. It was probably by no means an aimed shot because these guys were shooting all over everywhere. But... Uh, didn't make any difference. Uh, Don was dead and things had kind of spiraled way out of control. Now, I will say that there were warnings to Millette about the fact that something could happen to him, but he and Lloyd were both small town Indiana guys and they didn't, they regarded it as kind of a big joke. The whole thing that they were being threatened was just good press, that it, nobody really took this seriously and that the people they were attacking understood that they intended this not as being personal, but as just being part of their part of their job and part of what they were doing. Unfortunately, they didn't understand the mindset of a lot of the people that were that they were attacking in, in the police and uh, some of the uh, or some of the crime people, and uh, it resulted in Millette being. Uh, being shot. He had been warned at one point uh, there, were threatens, there were threats to blow his house up. Uh, he was given a gun by one of the police detectives who supported him, I believe it was. And uh, the joke about that was Don Millette had never fired a gun in his life. So what was he going to do with it? So uh, this, the sad thing is that uh, Millette had warning that he was, his life was in danger, but he and his brother failed to take into consideration just how serious the threat really was. They regarded what they were doing as not being personal, which was a big mistake on their part. If you threaten someone's livelihood, which they were doing with Chief Lengel and so forth, if you threaten someone's livelihood, uh, you do stand a chance of making them mad. And that's what happened. And 
Unfortunately, uh, Millette ended up losing his life. Yeah. So the Millette family is faced with this really uncomfortable situation, of course, where the police, who they don't like and who don't like them, show up at their house to examine the crime scene. How does that go? Uh, is it a thorough examination? What do they find? And what do they overlook? Well, they didn't find much of anything, and it wasn't particularly thorough. And that was fairly obvious from the start. And I think it was less than a week after Dawn was shot that Chief Lengel announced that the uh, murderers were from out of town. He blamed it on Italians, as I recall. The Black Hand uh, early mafia was just getting started, and there were a lot of killings, which the police didn't even bother to investigate in Canton in those days. And uh, they decided that uh, that was what the cause was. Canton police washed their hands of the whole thing by saying it was out of town. It pretty much indicated, well, we're never going to find these people. So another unsolved murder, too bad. The problem, the, the mistake that they made was that Don Millette was an editor. And I've always been fond of the old saying that you shouldn't get into a fight with a man who buys ink by the barrel. <laughs> and that's what happened here. Uh, all across the country, newspapers, I mean, this was a nationwide phenomenon. All across the country, newspapers got behind Millette and behind what had happened to Millette and demanded justice and demanded that the, that the perpetrators be caught and so forth. In fact, uh, it, it wasn't uncommon in those days because the police were generally ineffective in a lot of different ways. It wasn't uncommon in those days for people uh, who had lost someone to a crime or groups that had lost someone to a murder or something to hire private detectives. In fact, I mean, the 20s and the 30s were probably the heyday of the private detective in the United States. And uh, so hiring private detective, and in fact, there were more than one, there was more than one private detective hired to try to find who killed Millette. And to make things even better, there was a $25,000 reward put up to whoever could come up with the right answer. And Scripps Howard's newspaper chain hired a Cincinnati detective whose name was Ora Slater. And they hired him to come at, to Canton and solve the crime. Ora Slater was uh, a premier detective. He had worked as a railroad detective. Uh, he had been a sheriff, elected sheriff in, an in, in Indiana. He was one of the uh, members of the Cal Crim Detective Agency in, in uh, Cincinnati. And in fact, the Cal Crim, at least up until a few years ago, Cal Crim still exists in Cincinnati as a security business. So, uh, and unfortunately, they didn't have any records from that time period. But uh, as it turns out, they brought Ora Slater in. Ora Slater had already solved a very high profile murder case in southwestern Ohio in the Cincinnati area. And his name was on a lot of people's lips. And they brought him to town and put him to work on it. Ora Slater was unique in so much as he was 
a kind of quiet, mild-mannered guy. It looks like looked like somebody's kindly grandfather. He never carried a gun, uh, almost never carried a gun, never shot anybody, um, avoided physical violence and that sort of thing. But he was an extremely shrewd and intelligent interrogator. And he managed to talk people into either incriminating themselves or even confessing to crimes. And so he arrived in Canton and his job was to solve the crime that nobody else seemed to be able to come up with a solution for. So there are lots of leads coming in, especially because of the enormous reward. And because there are too many leads to handle, some of those leads end up going to Aura Slater. And Slater, in following up with one of them, meets a man named Bill Blitzer. And Bill shares with him a really interesting story about some time he had spent with none other than Pat McDermott in the days leading up to Millette's murder. Right. Blitzer and McDermott were from the same part of Pennsylvania, and at one part, at one point, uh, it appears as though the two of them worked in a coal mine uh, together as electricians in a coal mine together. And McDermott was coming east, and so was Blitzer, who was uh, generally moving around a lot because uh, he had creditors he had to continually skip out on. And he, he, he went in and he tried, a lot of people were trying to get Ora Slater's attention with tips and ideas and so forth. And, but he came along and he was the guy that had the name Pat McDermott, who had already sort of come up on Slater's radar. And he was the one that, uh, that first got him started on that. And then there was another guy from back in central Pennsylvania, Steve Kaschuk, I believe was how you pronounce that. And uh, he had actually ridden around with, uh, with McDermott, and McDermott in Canton and in Cleveland. And McDermott tried to recruit him to be his partner in beating up Millette. So Slater was able to tap into this and to tap into these these witnesses like Kaschok and Blitzer and so forth, and begin to build an idea of what happened and how it had gone down. And he, uh, he found out about Rudner and Rudner being sort of the uh, bankroll guy in this whole thing. He found out about Mazer. Uh, he learned a little bit about Streitenberger, and Streitenberger had supposedly an alibi that evening, although his alibi didn't pan out. His alibi had to do with uh, he and Mazur being together because Streitenberger's dog, Mazur apparently raised German shepherds or something, and, and Streitenberger's dog, a German shepherd puppy, was sick. And he asked Mazur to come over and have a look. And supposedly they spent an hour and a half sitting around late one evening talking about dogs. That was his alibi. So anyway, Slater worked through this and they eventually managed to arrest 
Rudner, and they arrested Mazur, and they began to circle around Streitenberger, but they they, they wanted McDermott, but they didn't know where, where he was. They chased leads on him to Cleveland. And this is what we're going through here tonight. This, this is sort of the uh, abbreviated version because there were, there were postal authorities involved. There were federal agents involved. There were all kinds of people stumbling all over themselves trying to figure out how to solve this and trying to figure out who these people were. And sometimes they got in Aura Slater's way, and sometimes they didn't. But uh, Slater persevered. Now, there was a prosecutor. The prosecutor in the county's name was McClintock, and he was a good guy. He wanted to see something happen here. He wanted to find out who had done it. And he teamed up with Aura Slater, and the two of them worked together Slater was able to get access to what information McClintock had already managed to accumulate, and this was a big help to them. And they had even gone so far as to meet with uh, McDermott's relatives. He had a couple of relatives that lived in Cleveland, and he met with them, and all of this uh, sort of thing. And at one point, Slater leaned on McDermott's relatives to try to find out where he was, and they said they didn't know where he was. So he had been in Cleveland. They tracked him to Cleveland, then he disappeared, and they said they didn't know where he was or where he'd gone. So, so Slater had uh, one of them, one of the I think it was Kasjak, up in Cleveland for a for an interrogation with federal agents or something of that nature, and. While this thing was going on, he gets a call from McDermott's relatives, and they want to talk. Well, somebody, his, his assistant took the call. He went to Slater, and he said, I've got them on the phone. They want to talk. Slater puts him off. He says, no, I'm going to take Kastok back to Canton first and stuff and tell him we'll, we'll talk with him then. And... It was a tremendous gamble on Slater's part that they would actually can follow through. But this is where Slater's brilliance was. He apparently knew or thought he knew them well enough that he knew they would come to him. And they did. And he told them what he wanted, that he wanted to get Pat. He wanted him to surrender and come back and stand trial. He wanted to give him a fair deal, a square deal. And that was an amazing piece of interrogative work that uh, Slater did on the two McDermott's in order to get them to the point where they were thinking seriously about turning Pat in. But they didn't do it that day. They wanted proof. They wanted to find out that they could trust McClintock and uh, Slater. And so they kind of fooled around a while, but then eventually they said, well, he might be back in, uh, back in home area in central Pennsylvania. And they get in touch with him and they said, we know where he is and get in touch with Slater. We know where he is and we can set him up for you. McDermott was in central Pennsylvania. 
his family arranged to set him up so that so that he could be captured. Now, this is another interesting aspect. Slater and McClintock decide to go from Canton, Ohio to central Pennsylvania to get McDermott. And they tell no one in Pennsylvania. They have no police powers in Pennsylvania. They have no power to bring him back from Pennsylvania. They just go with the idea that they can talk, hope, the hope that they can talk him in to coming back to Ohio and standing trial. And it was the most amazing thing in so much as they told Slater to be in this hotel room in, in this town in central Pennsylvania, be in this hotel room at this time and on the morning and McDermott will be there. And Slater is sitting there sweating bullets, wondering what's going to happen for once in his life. He's carrying a gun and here's somebody coming up the stairs. The door opens and in bursts Pat McDermott. McDermott looks at Slater and Slater says, do you know who I am? And McDermott says, you're Aura Slater. And he knew he was caught at that point, but he could just as easily have walked out of that door and run away because Slater had no reason to, no authority whatsoever to keep him. He and McClintock got together with McDermott, Pat McDermott, and convinced him to come back to Canton and surrender and stand trial for murder. They all piled into the same car. And you got to remember, this is the 1920s. So they were driving old mountain roads, old two lane roads on a rainy night from central Pennsylvania, all the way through Pitts to Pittsburgh, all the way to Canton. They get there and they get him to, the, to jail. And they succeeded in doing this merely because McDermott cooperated and they talked him into it. it is the most amazing. I mean, today, you know, they'd have SWAT teams and everything else involved. But here it is. You've got two guys. They don't tell the Pennsylvania State Police. They don't tell the local sheriff. They don't tell the local constable. They don't tell anybody. They just go and get him and come back. One of the most amazing crime apprehensions I think I have ever read of. Yeah, that, that says a lot about Ora Slater's reputation. Right? Absolutely, absolutely, yep, yep. Back again after these brief messages. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. 
But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Raw lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we have returned once more. So, can you talk about the trials? Uh, They were all tried individually, correct? Yes, they tried them all individually. It, it turns out that nobody was ever able to determine whose bullet it was that killed Don Millette. There were three men out there shooting. Uh, forensics was pretty rudimentary in those days. And there was just no way that anybody could tell exactly who did it. So they decided that they were all going to be tried for murder. Well, Mazur turned out to be the weak link, and they did eventually arrest Streitenberger, the police detective. Mazur turned out to be the weak link, and he agreed to turn state's evidence in return for not being charged with first-degree murder. He was going to be charged with manslaughter. The other three, Rudner, Streitenberger, and McDermott, were all charged with first-degree murder. And the trials were a big sensation, Um, lots of press, lots of uh, interest. All the newspapers carried it uh, across the country, headlines, everything. You know, occasionally you come across, if you read enough crime, true crime, you come across instances where there were those kinds of things. kind of publicity like you got with the Lindbergh kidnapping and that sort of thing. And they were all tried in Canton. Um, There were requests for change of venue, but that didn't go anywhere. So they were all tried in Canton because in truth, Canton felt that they had to prove that they were capable of convicting these guys. So they had the trials um, and In the end, uh, it turned out that uh, Mazur, because he turned state's evidence, got five years for manslaughter, actually got five to 20 years for manslaughter. McDermott and Streitenberger were convicted of first degree murder, 
but the jury suggested mercy because they didn't know whose bullet it was killed him, which means they didn't go, they didn't get the death penalty. Rudner, who was supposedly the brains of the operation in some respects, but he was certainly the money man, he was convicted of second degree murder. And eventually it worked out that they managed to find enough evidence that they charged Chief Lengel as being a co-conspirator, as being a part of this. Lengel was also, he had lost his job by then as chief of police. He was tried in Canton and he was found guilty of first degree murder and recommended for uh, mercy as well. So they managed to get these, all these guys convicted. Needless to say, there were lots of appeals, but Lengel was the only one who managed to get a new trial. And I, I like to say that it was, uh, you know, one conviction too far. Uh, their evidence just didn't stretch far enough to really convict Lengel. He was taken to the next county over in uh, Ohio. He was tried there and that a jury in that county acquitted him. And he, he wasn't tried again. Of course, his, his life was pretty much ruined. He, he fought for years trying to get a pension and a whole lot of different things. But in, in reality, he didn't get much of anything. The other three, the other guys all went to prison. Mazur got out after five years. Rudner, because he was convicted of second degree murder, thought that, you know, he should get parole. And, and parole was something that was possible with second degree murder. But at one point, he and Streitenberger went in uh, to see the parole board and the parole board ended up telling them they were lucky to be alive and there wasn't going to be any changes or any parole. So in the end, none of those guys got new trials and outside of Mazur, none of them got released from prison. Uh, they all ended up one way and one time or another uh, dying in prison. So in some respects, uh, justice was served and uh, Millette's killers were brought to justice. The only real uh, mystery today is whose bullet actually struck Millette. And the general consensus, and I would agree with this, is that it was Pat McDermott's weapon that actually killed him, although I don't believe anybody was uh, shooting all that straight that night to know with any degree of certainty. And that's what the juries eventually found, too. Nobody could be certain about who did it. So in, in the end, it, in the end uh, you know, they got the right guys. There were a few glitches along the way and a few left, a few questions left, but they got the right guys. One of the things that went wrong for McDermott, right, was that he made the poor decision to testify during his own trial and, <laughs> and, and kind well, of made a big mess out of it. McDermott was a short guy, as I said before, who looked like a clerk. He didn't look at all like a criminal, but he viewed himself as being a tough guy and a criminal and a hardcore criminal and all the rest. And he thought he could get on the stand and he was going to, you know, but no, he was no match for the, he was no match for the people who were there. 
And certainly he didn't do himself any good. I think he probably would have been convicted even if he hadn't tried to speak in his own behalf. Um, the truth is that uh, the Long Knives were out in Canton and they were going to get these three guys irregardless of what it took and how, how they were going to do it. So fortunately, they were they had plenty and plenty of evidence, although it was mostly all circumstantial. They, they had plenty of evidence. But uh, yeah, McDermott. Uh, and of course, McDermott is the as I've said before, if there's a most notorious here. It's Pat McDermott. He was sent to the Ohio Penitentiary. He escaped twice. The second time he was gone for months. He was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. They eventually found him living in New York City and arrested him uh, during a serious fire that occurred in, uh, in the Ohio Penitentiary uh, when, when uh, hundreds of inmates were killed. He was one of the inmates who threw rocks at National Guardsmen to keep them from getting into the prison, getting near to, near to the prison to rescue people. Um, he was generally a real hard case. And he continued to be a hard case. And, you know, he got away. He, uh, his, his second escape from prison was absolute. I mean, it was amazing. He, he managed to get two women, although I think they were probably friends of uh, fellow prisoners, but he managed to get two women. Visitation day at the Ohio Penitentiary for trusted inmates. And at that point, he had become a trusted inmate somehow. The trusted inmates were allowed to wear civilian clothes and mingle with the visitors. So he got two women to come in. They brought an extra top coat and hat. And uh, he simply put on the top coat and hat and walked back out past the guard. The guy had been there for like 25 years. The guards didn't recognize him. He walked out, got into an Oldsmobile, drove away, got a gun somewhere, held up a, a cabbie, took some money and he managed to escape and he stayed on the lam for like, I don't know, six or eight months. And he was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. Supposedly he died with some mental issues. Um, I'm not really sure what that was all about, but uh, he remained a hard case to the end. He didn't like to give interviews. He was tough about everything. And, uh, he, he was uh, certainly, if there's anybody involved in this particular incident, the murder of Don Millette, who is most notorious, it's Pat McDermott. Uh, he did give an interview, though, right? Uh, where Yeah, where he... a woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a pretty self-serving interview, but uh, Pat could never resist the ladies. And uh, so he had an opportunity to be interviewed by one, and he took it. And did he shed any light on Millette's murder? Do you, do you trust any part of his account that night? Oh, I don't think you can trust a great deal of anything Pat McDermott said, whether it was on the stand or to a reporter or whatever. Pat was going to do whatever he could to cast himself in the best light in a lot of different ways. And that's pretty much what he did. One of the uh, interesting... <laughs> One of the odd things, uh, long after this book was published, I heard from someone who believed that their, uh, that their relative was 
a part of this whole thing and uh and a part and a friend of pat mcdermott and all the rest of this and i did the research and this person was nowhere i, I did some research this person was nowhere to be found but they were actually upset because uh the family history was that that this this relative had been a part of it and you know part of pat mcdermott's circle and uh they were proud of him because of how tough pat mcdermott was <laughs> you you run into some strange situations sometimes yeah so the morning after Millette was murdered ben rudner visited police chief lengel in his office and they had a closed door meeting together what what role do you believe chief lengel had in all of this did he help plot Millette's murder was he aware that it was being planned but not directly involved, uh, choosing instead just to look the other way? What, what are your thoughts on his involvement? I think Lengel's uh, role in it was pretty passive in so much as I think he knew that there were rumors, uh, and, and they were fairly widespread, that somebody wanted to give Millette a beating, and there were death threats and so forth. And I think Lengel was aware of the was aware of these, because Millette was so critical of him. He wasn't big enough man to make to to set aside any kind of personal animosity and investigate them thoroughly. He just kind of let them go. And I think if he had been more proactive in his actions, uh, he possibly could have prevented this from happening. But Rudner and Lengel were friends. Uh, actually, it was more, I think, Rudner wanting to uh, show off how, uh, how much influence and everything he had. And so, uh, you know, he was always talking to, to Lengel and trying to find out what they knew and so forth. And he even went so far as to take Oris. He and Oris Slater went for a car ride at one point. He was trying to find out from Slater what Slater knew. And I think with Slater, it was kind of like the old cat toying with the mouse kind of thing. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't buying it. At one point, uh, I think it was uh, Rudner showed him a 45 automatic pistol. And, you know, it, it was kind of a, but Rudner didn't have the courage to shoot or kill anybody by himself. So. Slater was relatively safe. But uh, yeah, I think, I think uh, that had Lengel been more proactive and a better policeman, but you have, to, you, know, you have to look at policing in those days. I mean, you know, there was no police academies or any of that kind of thing. They learned all this stuff on the fly. Cops learned their things on the fly. They learned good and bad habits on the fly. And Lengel, he wanted to get along with these people um, and... He wanted to get along with the crooks and maybe he had a little something else going on. And, you know, so I think, uh, and Rudner questioned him, tried to find out what he knew the next morning and so on. But uh, I don't think Lengel would have sanctioned uh, murdering Millette, but I think he was more than willing to let Millette get a good beating if somebody wanted to give it to him. Yeah. Uh, Rudner, uh, took a ride with the coroner as well. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah. 
And I think it was on that ride uh, that he pulled out his his forty five to to try to convince the coroner it it wasn't the murder weapon. Yeah, he said, "Yeah, they show you that I carry a forty five, and that Mallette was killed with a thirty eight. Essentially, what essentially that's what he was trying to say. And there was likely an intent to intimidate the coroner as, as well. Oh yeah, yeah, he was he was, uh, but. He wasn't very good at intimidation, which didn't make him a very good crime boss. And, of course, he ended up in prison for the rest of his life. So he wasn't much of a crime boss. <laughs> right. So what happens to the Millette family after this? And what happens to the, to the paper, the Daily News? Well, as far as the Canton Daily News goes, after this story was no longer news, um, the Canton Daily News was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for their reporting uh, during this time period, which was a great coup, of course. And they uh, were somewhat successful. In fact, I think the month that uh, Millette was killed, their circulation came the closest to overtaking the repository. But as time went by, the paper just kind of began to fade again. Uh, There was no stomach for editorial campaigns. Uh, Cox kind of decided that, you know, he wasn't making any money. Uh, This thing was losing money. It was losing. So he decided to get rid of it. And he ended up selling the Canton Daily News to the Canton Repository who wasted no time whatsoever in shutting it down. I think if I remember correctly, the repository was interested in it because Cox had built a brand new newspaper printing plant for the Canton Daily News, and I think the repository was interested in having that plant. The repository even got the Pulitzer Medal, (laughs) which... uh, was awarded to the Canton Daily News. I don't know if the repositories ever gotten a Pulitzer Award, but they, they had the medal from the Canton Daily News anyway. So that, that's what happened with, uh, with the newspaper. As far as the Millette family, they moved back to Indianapolis. Um, Dawn's wife never remarried. She uh, continued to spend most of her life Uh, protecting her husband's reputation. There was an auditorium named after Don Millette at uh, Indiana University. There was a lecture series started in New York in his name, an annual that that attracted some fairly well-known and highly respected journalists. There was a shopping area in Canton that became known as the Millette Mall. But by and large, by the time you get to the 60s and the 1960s and the 1970s, Don Millette is pretty much forgotten. And uh, when I wrote this book, uh, he had a number of children, a number of daughters. I wrote this book and it became a one book selection in Canton. And one of the librarians said to me, did you ever try to find any of, of his children to talk to him about? I said, no. I said it was so long ago and the children would have been so, it would have been young. I wouldn't have expected them to, any of them to, if they were even alive, to have any memory of it. And she says, I'll bet I can find one. (laughs) I said, okay. Well, she did. It turns out the one she found was his oldest daughter was still alive when we were doing this. 
She was over 90 years old. She has, she was married four times. <laughs> she, this little diminutive woman, but she was a spark plug. Well, I want to tell you. So her memory was sharp and we brought her to Canton. I gave up my honorarium for, for doing the one book thing in Canton so they could afford to bring her to Canton so she could be at one of our uh, lectures that we gave on Millette. And by and large, I've heard from Lloyd Millette's family, I've heard from Don Millette's family, and by and large, they all say that the book is pretty much true to exactly what they had heard uh, from their, within the family, when the family lore and so forth. And uh, little old, I don't know what her name was, had she been married four times, I forget what her, name, what her married name was at that point, but uh, she, she, was, she was a character. And uh, as an author, I should have, I suppose, made more of an effort to find her, but I mean, you know. <laughs> I never thought she'd be alive, be alive when she was like 90-some years old, but there you go. <laughs> Her name was uh, Jean, right? Yeah, yeah, she was the... And she's the one that I talk about in the book, actually heard the shooting, heard the shots being fired. Yeah. Yeah, she was still alive. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was interesting. I had a little egg on my face after that, but I'm glad we found her because... She was a very interesting lady to uh, to talk to, and I'm glad we brought her to Canton so people there could hear about it and she could see how we were interested in what had happened to her father so, so many years ago. Uh, well, this has been so nice having you on. Uh, I was so hoping to have you back after our last interview, and I'm glad that we were able to make it happen. So I do just want to mention that both this book and your Cassie Chadwick book they are both available on the Kent State University Press website. Yes, and on Amazon. I think you can still get them both. I mean, I, I didn't get Queen of the Con on Amazon. And I think Murder of a Journalist, which, you know, they're, they're both ebooks and everything. Um, at one point, Murder of a Journalist was used uh, in uh, a journalism class in, uh, at Ohio University, uh, which has one of the best... Uh, journalism programs in the country. Uh, they used the book uh, in, I forget exactly how they used it in the class, but the professor was a, a friend of mine and uh, she used it for two or three years. So uh, uh, Don Millette is someone we, uh, we really should not forget. It's someone that the press journalists themselves should not forget. But unfortunately, uh, he seems to continually slide into uh, anonymity. <laughs> yeah. You have a, a strong affinity for Don Millette, it, it sounds like. I do. I mean, uh, you know, you, uh, the guy had lots of guts. Not everything he did was smart. Not everything he did, not even everything he did was completely honest or ethical, but the guy had guts. And how many times today do you meet newspaper editors with guts? Good, good point. Yeah. Well, again, this has been so much fun. Thanks again. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate the opportunity, Eric, and I certainly appreciate the opportunity to uh, once again get a chance to uh, dust off Don Millette, and uh, hopefully some people will listen to this podcast and uh, maybe be moved by, by it in some way that, uh, that can only help to improve uh, what we get, uh, what, our, what our press is able to do, because uh, it's a vital part of our democracy. 
Yes. Again, I have been speaking to Thomas Crowell. He is the author of Murder of a Journalist, the true story of the death of Donald Ring Millette. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.